Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. I wanted to explore with both of you some ideas around some stuff that I've read recently. One is this psych article, How to Start Having More Fun. And a paper I read a while ago called Liberating Engagement, A Theory of Consumer Fun. Starting with a psych article, the question to you is, I imagine in American culture, this Protestant work ethic, fun is a waste of time, right? But the point that they're making in this article quite early on is that you burn out a lot quicker if you're not having fun, right? So just in terms of being like a good productive worker, you have to balance your life with also having fun. And the thing about this particular article is you look who wrote it, it's very much all about positive psychology. And so this is maybe one half of the podcast that I would like to get both of your opinions on or your experiences with positive psychology, because there is a quote about positive psychology. I just found this on Wikipedia. I'm not going to claim that I've dug any deeper than that, but it makes a point in one particular bit that. Positive psychology have suggested a number of factors that may contribute to happiness and subjective well-being. For example, social ties with a partner, family, friends, colleagues, and wider networks, memberships to clubs, social organizations, blah, 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 blah. And actually, all that stuff is things that have come up on the podcast in the past. So I'm wondering what your perspective is when it comes to ideas of positivity or fun or happiness, like how that's played a part in either of your professional lives in terms of working with clients? I wouldn't call it fun because fun has the Pepsi generation connotation in the United States rather than a deep joy in your life. But it has come up because America is not in a time of hope. We don't have an alternative leader that is hopeful for a better life. 
except for Trump, who says, make America great again. So it's a retrograde idea that going back to racism and sexism will rescue us all and bring back jobs. But there isn't enough hope. And hope is what I think is more crucial to joy than like fun, which might be getting drunk or something. I know that's not what the positivity people Words, but I think there's a, an enlightenment is fun and hope is positive. And rather than just, I love myself and working out a lot and eating right and feeling like you are somehow closer to divinity because you do those things, which I think is a false, empty promise, which leads to consumerism. I don't know, that may be extreme. One of the things about fun, I think, is having interests, right? Having very deep interests. And as somebody that is a dilettante, uh, and I just find a lot of things interesting, so I have a wide-ranging interest. So that does really help create a lot of rapport quickly with people right? in terms of being able to reflect their interests or listening to a client talk about something that they're passionate and being able to pick up on some element I find is really, oh, that's that's fascinating. Tell me more. And I think that's also one of the things that people often tell me that they don't get a lot of encouragement in their life. Because one of the major things about connection and communication And I even notice this myself, like the further away I get from counseling sometimes. But people really respond to people having a genuine interest in what they have to say, right? So many people with like social anxieties are like, oh, like I'm afraid I'm going to make a fool of myself. I don't know what to say to people. I don't know how to come across as charming or come across as socially apt. And a lot of it is if you can listen, like genuinely listen and have some good open-ended questions, you're 90% there. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, I want to jump over to this other paper, the liberating engagement theory of consumer fun because there is a deep in there there's a story i guess where they were speaking to someone who was homeless and that they recounted like the last time that they had fun was when they were a kid right so that idea of fun being maybe flippant again there's terms here i guess maybe you should go around defining what fun is what joy is what enjoyment is blah 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 etc but it was interesting bit anyway of the paper I just wondered if that's something you had come across as well, equally in working homeless population, whether there's a sort of distance from a sense of just, yeah, joy or fun, whatever that really means. I think oftentimes the more the clients are in a state of economic survival mode, yeah. There is, like, I've often heard other counselors be like, take any job that gets offered. Or, you know, someone complains about their work. You should be grateful to have a job. And on one hand, it may be true that some people have much less leverage in being able to walk out of jobs. That, That can be very much a reality of the situation. And at the same time, That's not to say that like 
people need to grovel. That those are two very thing, different things. And you can talk about the reality of the situation without also putting somebody like without necessarily de devaluing them or demeaning them. That's something that the society often has a very hard time doing. And again, yeah. it's also like really important for people's mental health, emotional state, ability to regulate. All these things are dependent on somebody feeling like they are more than survival. Yeah, and feeling like someone cares about them in this world. Somebody sees them. I think a lot of people and certainly clients have told me this, that one of the reasons they believe in God is they have to feel like somebody cares, that they're not completely meaningless and not valuable and that their life meant something. There isn't enough out there to give them that feeling. And since the majority of Americans work in jobs that are completely depersonifying, fast food, Amazon, call centers, Walmart, you're not a person at all. And you need to be recognized. There's, I wouldn't call it fun, but a joy in recognition and joy in immersion in something that is meaningful within often jobs and existences that erase you. This is fascinating because, again, the Journal of Consumer Research, they're not exactly going to be anti-capitalist, but they have, at the beginning of that paper, the Liberating Engagement Theory of Consumer Fund, they talk about the the definition or where the term started to emerge. And this idea that fun, the, the concept of fun is a recent, fairly recent phenomenon that it, it emerged into or was used in language around the 19th century, ties into industrial revolution, right? And then the second place it turns up is in relation to school as well. And so that you had this dividing line between what is work and what is not work. And so yeah. you ha you have to have that requirement because like you said, you're doing this human oh. activity for a huge amount of your life, that the switch then, the release valve, is it better be fun. And the interesting thing about their sort of definitions is that fun doesn't necessarily have to be meaningful. Whereas what you're talking about, Harriet, with this sort of deep pleasure, this happiness, like they're saying you can be happy and it can be meaningful, but it doesn't necessarily mean it, it's fun. And I guess what they're trying to get at with this paper, I guess, is that they're just trying to fight, figure out how humans work so they can sell us more shit. Yeah, I think of that a lot because as you walk around New York City, there's all sorts of restaurants that have a happy hour. Happy hour is when you get out of work and you go get drinks. That's what's considered happy. And so that would be fun going and drinking after work, which is not fun. It's a different kind of world where people's work is meaningful and therefore not exactly fun, but joyful because you're, you're important. You're deciding things. As a therapist, I enjoy my work. I enjoy watching people struggle with change and manage. I enjoy being able to figure out with them their lives and watching their lives flourish. But I'm not giggling over it. It's a deep joy of the hope of people to transform themselves, which is very different from the kind of happy in a happy hour, drinking and forced laughter. I also think there's something else going on here. And again, um, both your perspectives jump in at any point, which is that when 
things are not going well for us when we're in distress, certainly for myself, maybe a certain amount of introspection happens. But I'm not sure that happens so much when things are going well, when there's positive emotions or whatever. And that is fascinating just as a observation. And I guess this is what some of the positive psychology stuff was trying to get at, was like, we need to figure out, rather than just accept these sort of positive states, we should figure out how this is actually happening. Because a lot of the time, it really, it just means you're on the right track with your work with being a therapist. Like you said, you're so I'm on the right track because I'm helping people and I'm learning things and there's a sense of joy there. So to some degree, you don't push back on that or don't question it because it's, I don't know, maybe it's organic. It's that sort of meaning and purpose stuff. And so the reason to think about positive emotions is because corporations definitely are. They're trying to figure this stuff out. And what's interesting is that they do have some of these things that you've spoken about, like their their theory is very much your observation about the happy hour. That's a bounded thing. Like this is, they have these four things inside their theory, which are novelty, connectedness, spontaneity, and boundedness. Now, the boundedness thing means by definition, there's always a sort of lamenting that, oh, the thing's going to be over at some point, but that it does take place in a certain time and place. But their big old theory is that their idea of fun is something that you are completely absorbed by, but crucially are liberated from internal restriction or a temporary release from meaningful commitment. And that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a very different thing from a joy and commitment to your work, to your partner, to the world, which I see as more joyful, maybe less happy in the sense of happy hour, but more joyful because you have hope, you have connection. And I see that in our field, Ikoi, and I guess in substance abuse, it would be really crucial. The difference between taking a pill or a substance that alters you and maybe makes you comfortably numb or in the case of heroin, actually happy and carefree versus trying to create the deep joy of a meaning in your life and hope for a better future. And I think things are sold with a very trite idea of being happy, drinking a cola or buying new shoes, which is not the kind of happiness that most therapists believe in. And yet I think people don't look at themselves unless there's something wrong because if it ain't broke, why fix it? And people feel broken and so they want to fix themselves and they could fix themselves with a pill or drug. They could also fix themselves by Ansel and Gretel going back and seeing where did we get lost? Can Brand come back? Well, I mean, there is a certain, uh, Amer- an American sense, I think, of happiness can be very rapacious. Yeah. It's, I think, one of the most recent and clear examples of the rapaciousness of wealth and American culture is what recently happened with the submarine or what with Mount Everest tourism, where it is basically constantly pushing the extreme envelope for the wealthy set because it's not enough to be like, oh, I took a summer in whatever fancy resort 
that's no longer bragging rights. That there is this element of, I went to space. I went to the bottom of the ocean. I went to the highest peaks in the world. It's a, and that's not to say that like people that do this aren't necessarily actually interested in those things that some of them are surely, right? But that it breeds this, this ever extreme boundary pushing rapaciousness because that is ultimately, you know, what happiness is in Western modern capitalism is your ability to consume. Right. Right. To the highest level. Yeah. And that is just so true. It's thrill seeking where people haven't gone in competition with everyone else who hasn't gone there. And that's that same kind of happiness I noticed. There's a film on Netflix about Arnold Schwarzenegger. It, goal was to be the best, the biggest muscles, the best bodybuilder. And I remember thinking when I saw this, wow, these are unlimited goals. You didn't think too big beyond your own biceps, did you? And that his quest to be the best that he said was his adjustment to having a father who came back from being defeated because Austria was with the Nazis and Hitler was Austrian. They were very gumbo fascism. And they were defeated and came home and got regularly drunk and beat their families. And he didn't think it was unusual because all of his friends had the same story. And that he had an older brother who, unlike Arnold, was very interested in school and reading and was a much more sensitive, intelligent person. And he died of alcoholism. That Whereas Arnold, whose dreams and ideas didn't get beyond his biceps, flourished. Really, in these societies, they whittle down people's dreams. And I think that's one of the things that our guest, Kristen Godsey, talked about in her, from her book, <clears throat> excuse me, Every Day Utopias, that in school you read Brave New World, 1984, Animal Farm, People who hope for something better have something worse. And that all there is this rapacious, to use Ecoy's intelligent, capitalist accumulation of more, which is not happy from my point of view at all. It's not a psychoanalytic idea of joy, which Mm. is much more, it's much bigger and more embracing of connection in the world. And you're all worried. There's a quote in that paper, fun is a response to regimented lives. It was early on, right? When they're talking about the 19th century stuff. And so they make a link, obviously, between consumption and fun. Not that those two things have to go hand in hand, but that they often do. And so one way that that fun happens is because the individual feels like they have a choice about the activity or the product they're about to buy. And as someone who buys musical instruments, they do make me feel good. (laughs) So I'm not down on consumption necessarily. I don't like the way they're made. But consumption, I think, is prior to capitalism. I think that element of acquiring things, I think that is part of the some part of being a human being. But the point being that if the only way you get any sense of like liberation from the day-to-day shit is through your consumer choices, then your ability to consume is all you are and all you can be. I think it's a slightly different thing when you're a millionaire or a billionaire, 
right? Because your choices are just, maybe your choices are just wider, but you still are defined by being a consumer. I think like a good, interesting example. So there was a CEO named, I think it's Tony Say, Tony Sue. H-S-I-E-U is the spelling. He was the CEO of Zappos. Uh, he was famous for creating this very passionate, what he called like fun, passionate corporate culture. Yeah, um, you pay people to leave, wouldn't he? And actually not really in so much, but... Yeah, there was like, if it was Zippos, it was the shoe thing, right? It was like, I'll pay you $10,000 and you can just leave right now. Because it was a thing about commitment. It was like, right. we'd prefer you to stay long-term, but if you're just here for a quick buck, then here's $10,000. So it's like a mind fuck. And it's also one of those things where there were a lot of comments from a lot of people that had worked the corporate culture in that it was a work hard, play hard, except you were supposed to play hard at work instead of on your own time which is a certain kind of boundary blurry. But he left Zappos. I don't remember what under why he left the helm of Zappos, but he eventually died in a really tragic state with friends talking about his issues with like extreme fasting and drug use and hypoxia. And it's a strange story, but in a sense, right, this kind of, again, what is consumption? Consumption is consuming. So it's so this is like an example of a CEO that got consumed by his own, you know, he died in such a state when a huge part of what he was known for was like, quote unquote, fun and passion. Mm. For our listeners, what hypoxia is because some people. Oh, yeah, he used to like to deprive himself of oxygen. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's. A huge part of what I see in terms of substance use disorder, especially as you go younger in age, is also just sheer boredom. Yeah. And a lot of times, like, if you are not encouraged by parents, if you are not encouraged by your teachers, like things like hobbies, interests are to a huge degree habits. People think that they're natural, but if those things are discouraged, people don't have, they never had the environment where they could express their interests, express their hobbies and have that be encouraged in any way. So if that's not something that's been encouraged for you, you don't develop the ability to pursue those things. Or even aside from hobbies, bigger interests and connections with big things that elevate. Like if you look at people who are interested Greta Thunberg. She describes how before she did that, she was a problem. She was depressed all the time. There was nothing she lived for. But once she got interested in this, her life had a purpose and she made connections around it. And she felt she was part of something very big and very meaningful in the world. Because otherwise, if it's just her personal thrills, that's this very limiting. One of the things that like, I, I think is important about fun is a certain aspect of fun is also creativity, right? Mm. The ability right. to be creative. And one of the major aspects of creativity is 
that it is really vital and important to good solutions. There was a Japanese engineer who was an artist, and he talked about how much his art influenced his ability to be like a good engineer, right? That he gave him joy of solving problems because he liked sculpture and painting and pottery. And he talked about whenever I was actually stuck in an engineering problem, At work, I would go home and I would work on clay. I would work with paint. I would work with different mediums. And in that process, I would think up of these really good solutions. Yeah, there's a thing. I can't quite find the quote right now, but the whole point is that with this hedonic engagement part of the theory of fun, that you are just doing the task purely for the joy of doing the thing, right? That there's no goal. There's no like end game. It's just being absorbed in a thing. So that, yeah, obviously that has parallels with the whole flow state stuff. But I think the benefit of however flippant fun seems, I think the benefit of it is like to some degree, a series of moments over time must add up, even if they aren't particularly meaningful, that they become part of a particular outlook or disposition. I think I can see a sort of flow chart between Fun equals happiness equals some sort of contentment. Obviously, there's all kinds of life circumstances around that kind of stuff. But that I'm not, I'm not entirely on board with everything that's written in both of these things. But I do think that fun is clearly has more going for it than may first appear because you don't have to convince a kid to go have fun. You do have to convince them to go to school, right? There's something about play creativity, all that stuff that I think is innate. And if we were just left alone, we'd probably just explore it a bit more. But that's my own personal thing. I have a friend who did that with his kids. He's black and he didn't want them to go to school, learn Columbus discovered America because there were a whole set of peoples Mm. here and nobody discovered it. It had been discovered thousands of years before and he didn't want the whole racist stuff. And so he educated his kids at home and their idea of fun. Oh, can we do the physics now? Can we do our workbook? Because he transformed the way he taught. He's a professor and the way he taught them was their treat time was learning new things. And I think the reason that school and work appear punitive is because of the way it's organized. Absolutely. They conclude this paper, Liberating Engagement Theory of Consumer Fun, with saying that this theory clearly extends beyond their realm, that it could be used for educational purposes. Certainly, it's one of those things where there's the criticism, our kids are all just playing video games and they're not focusing on school. It's make school as interesting as video games, then you've solved your problem. So it's like, how do you also then apply some of this stuff? I think balance. Right. Because life is not always about fun, that there is something that is rote and has a certain level of drudgery. And I think the problem is that like the school kind of exacerbates the rote and the drudgery with none of the fun. But that's not to say that you can't actually make everything fun or that everything should be fun, because that's also part of American excessiveness is that we should, I'm Buddhist. I don't feel that I should be happy all the time at all, right? That happiness is 
that I feel happiness and joy because it is, it doesn't have to be a rare thing in life. I feel that it's important to possibly have a certain level of maybe contentment with the self and contentment with your close relations and those kinds of things. But I don't believe that I need to be happy all the time. And I think that's also one of the things that often drive people to a, a, part, a huge part of life is a certain expectation. And if your expectation is that you're happy all the time, you're going to fail life because life isn't happy all the time. No, it isn't. But a lot of the drudgery even for children, I taught kindergarten and first grade for a while, and it was so different. I just threw out the, you know, I threw out the teacher's guides, which were real shit. But they learned to read because they told stories, they told their dreams, and we wrote them down and made a script and acted out their dreams. And they were practicing writing because they had to write the script. But it meant something to them. It was part of their lives. And I think even something as drudgery as multiplication tables, if you're practicing up because you have a multiplication contest or something, it can have a meaning rather than just because the teacher said so. Mm -hmm. If you think about it and it has meaning to you, then it can be fun. And all that a group of us started a school after the we were teachers and the school we taught at was awful. And they pushed really crappy learning that the kids couldn't relate to. And it was a very corrupt place. But all the kids learned to read, even kids who didn't learn to read in the other school. In the Prince Street School, it was called because what they thought was important, what they said was important. The lessons were geared to who they are. And Thomas E. Dewey's educational philosophy was about that rather than Okay, a lot of life is drudgery, kids, so you have to do what I say. I think a lot of it is being become more joyful, and I wouldn't say fun, because that does sound trite to me, but more joyful when they have some kind of meaning to you. When you feel you're involved, you're valued, and you're doing something that means something to you, rather yeah. than just because somebody said so. Yeah, okay, so one of the guests I hope to get on is, I think they're a group or a charity or however they're organized that use board games as part of their therapy because you get to role play different characters. To my mind, that sounds like maybe intuitive way of interpreting things that are in this paper, these insights around liberating engagement into the therapy thing. And I'm wondering if you guys have ever come across things because I think maybe the stock image of therapy is one of sure it would be a meaningful process but it's going to be heavy like you don't necessarily you, it might you, it might involve some liberation you can be liberated from how you've thought or felt about the world up to a point but you don't necessarily see it as you wouldn't label it necessarily as fun so i'm just wondering have you had any experience read or seen anything about people trying to use that as a way in if i was a child therapist for quite a while before I had my own children and therefore wanted to switch to adults. But with children, you have to play. I remember one little girl who was five who was raped by her stepfather and I put myself at her disposal. We played whatever game she wanted and one of the games was her saying no and, and I would say, 
oh, yes, I'm going to take over you. And no, and we'd act out the whole thing. If you're doing therapy with children, it's all play. It's all play. It's acting out. Even if you're doing board games with them, it's bonding through play. It's all a kind of fun because kids want to play. And I remember at one point when we were on the floor, the little girl that I was working with crawled into my lap, which was always a possibility. And she looked up at me. Sorry, Harriet, the microphone got covered there. She looked up at you and said, what, sorry? Are you sure you're really a grown-up? She couldn't imagine that a grown-up would see what she was saying, recognize her and join her world and have fun with her in a sense. It was fun, her therapy, but it was very heavy. She used to stand up in school, take off her clothes and throw water on everybody. And she was very difficult and she stopped doing those things. She had a chance to play them out with me. That's what therapy is. You can't just ask them to discuss their problems. They don't think that way. You just have to wonder if, is that just innate to the age or is that sort of capacity to play always there as an adult as well? But it's just, we haven't arranged society in that way. Like, instead, it's all very serious. Someone like the Marx Brothers, it's often silly and play and it's delightful and everyone laughs. Yeah. It's play, but it's serious. Yeah, it's just really interesting because this sense of care, I was just wondering, oh, does it become, is it a prerequisite for fun? Or does, but yeah, it's probably the wrong way of thinking that it's a cyclical thing, right? Because you were able to have fun with that child, that enabled them to feel cared for. And then it essentially enables them to go off into the world. So it's, yeah, that care and fun maybe are one and the same thing, that there isn't a flippantness to fun, that there is a sense of, and again, there's loosey-goosey terms here, fun, enjoyment, joy, blah, blah, blah. But I think it provokes further discussion. And I'll see if I can get the board game people to come on and talk about that. Interesting, because I think with the kids that I worked for and worked with, a lot of it is when we played, I recognized them. I entered their world. I wasn't managing them outside without being part of their world. And part of the joy and the fun was we're in your world together and you're not alone which wow. is a joyful experience. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Equally, I don't know if you had any sort of um, reflections on any of that. We've got maybe seven minutes left. I think one aspect of play that's also often ignored everywhere in terms of what's the difference between play with adults and children, right? With children, a very different quality of play oftentimes is their ability to not be self-conscious and devote themselves to that activity in a in a way that's not self-conscious and the difference between like adult i think and child play is that as we grow older this ability to be less self-conscious fades because we as an adult like you always have to be regulated you have to you care about how you appear to other people you care about what your peers think of you all these things So this ability to lose yourself in an activity, right, is one of the of the major differences between play in adults and children. And it's also tragic, right, because this ability for like adults to be oftentimes what's called passionate is 
the ability for people of any age to be able to lose themselves in the activity and be so focused on what you're doing that the outside world doesn't necessarily exist as much. This is a great point because this is, to some degree, uh, facilitates that sort of feverish alliance to brands like Marvel or Star Wars, right? It's, it's a form where you're allowed to be, to some degree, <laughs> depending on your age. But these movies and the conventions and stuff like that, they become that bounded space where you can connect with other people, you can play, it's fun, it's novel. There's containers for that, the kid thing to come out again as an adult. Yeah, and it comes out also with some comedians. I always think of the Marx Brothers because what they say is often it's silly. They have this, you know, this bit where they have to sign a contract and they say the party of the first party is agreed with the party of the first party and then they throw it off the party with the second party. And then they just, it doesn't mean anything. And they're mocking it all. And yeah. they're having fun. It's doing the forbidden. Contracts are supposed to be serious. They're just having fun. Yeah. And I think there's definitely something as a kid when you see adults being silly, which yeah. is relieving because it means that the direction of travel, as in getting older, maturing, doesn't equate to regulated misery. <laughs> Because yeah. I was thinking about that thing you just said there, because as you get older, there's more regulations required of you. And I, I do wonder if, maybe this is a side, but the, this idea of being realistic, it's like somehow as you get older, you just become more realistic about how the world works, whatever. Sometimes I wonder, is that realism or is that just you've been defeated? Yeah, I think the real world is weird and funny and often bizarre. Are. Again, reality is not about the person or it's not even about people. It's just about whatever conditions are on hand. And is that always pleasant? Absolutely not. But yeah, there, there's a huge reason why psychedelics are becoming popular. What do psychedelics do? Psychedelics put you outside of yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. What do all these extreme sports have in common? As somebody that used to race cars, the prospect of death puts you <laughs> in a very different state of mind that is very hard to achieve in day-to-day -day waking life. And it is a sense of like, it can be an extreme hyper-focus that isn't about you. And when you are in a very high-risk situation, right, you do have the sense of focus and clarity. And again, like lack of self-consciousness, mm -hmm. right? That can be really, to a certain degree, all very enjoyable. This is why we see all these adventurism and these extreme sports become popular in our culture. Because what do they have in common in, in some ways is that childhood lack of self-conscious being able to dive into something. And that's also, it's a blessing. It's also a curse in a sense that like that state can also extremely warp your risk assessment. Yeah, you know, That's why a lot of especially young men have fun but risky behavior that gets them hurt, seriously hurt and killed sometimes. Oftentimes, yeah, a lot of these accidents are in 
often drugs and alcohol can be involved, but also not necessarily, right? That sometimes a state of fun is a state of intoxication because a lot of times for, especially for the, some of the younger people that talked about their binge drinking in a sense was like, it was like this reminder of this childhood intoxication. Yeah. What do you think about, just because we're coming up to the hour, just as a final bit in the positive psychology, how to have more fun article was contentment becomes a long-term sustainable byproduct of having fun. What do you think about that? I always think a lot of these quote-unquote Western psychology often just crib off of bite-sized Buddhism. (laughs) You have to be relatively content with yourself in order for something to not become escapism. And that completely depends on the nature of your job, right? Because if that's where you spend most of your hours in the day, then yeah, your need to escape might be greater or lesser. Maybe. There's also one of those things where sometimes a job that you are passionate about is extremely draining. Working with clients, I absolutely love the work, but once I get home, I don't want to do anything. I'm so drained. Because working with people is hard, trying to de-escalate. It can be really draining. So it's one of those things here. Yeah. What if, if you love your work, you'll never work a day in your life is absolute bullshit. Yeah. It depends is. on what you do. It really depends on what you do. It depends on your relationship with work. I know somebody that was a professor and now he has a very hourly retail work. Uh, you know, and it's one of those things where he's just, I am so much happier as a retail worker than as a adjunct professor in the American system because he says that I'm not stressed out about work. I can like when I clock out, I am truly done with work. Do working conditions greatly impact the ability for people to have good lives? Absolutely. Just because of the bulk of time spent there. But does is work necessarily relate contentment in life? Not necessarily. Yeah, Savit cut out a bit there on the final couple of sentences there, equally, yeah. but we are presumably we've only got literally a couple of minutes left. So I don't know either if you just wanted to repeat that final thing. So I've got the recording of it or I'll have to chop it out. It's up to you. All right. Um, no, I, oh, go ahead. The word fun has a trite connotation to me. I think it has to a lot of people. I think contentment or joy or enjoyment have much more profound connotations, at least for me, and relate to your, your immersion in something you believe in, your sense of connection, and other things that are profound, not just a kind of giddy moment, but bigger. I guess possibly the thing that they're trying to get at with this paper is that whilst fun might not be meaningful, it can be part of a thing that stacks up into maybe more contentment on a longer term. So whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But and also you got to remember that it's a consumer journal, right? So yes. they have a very particular framing of what or how human beings are. But yeah, anyway, I'm not sure that there's any sort of major super mega conclusions to all of this kind of stuff, but it's just, it's interesting to think about uh, yeah, fun, play, positive psychology. And yeah, hopefully we'll explore it a bit more in through the board game stuff as well. See what comes out of that.
look forward to it. Thank you. Awesome. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, J. Daniel Richer, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Bredjen Kohler, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interpersonal personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.